Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Bloke and the Bird Show, where we, we have another show. Two in a row. No races, so, you know, it's we easier didn't. for us to record. Okay, except that we're still <clears throat> off our record date, because this is not Sunday. It is. Um, that's because of other issues that are very much outside of our control, that at least has one of us scrambling on our vacation days. Not that he's bitter or anything. Oh, so bitter. Okay, I just want to... You want to know why I'm bitter? It's because I am on day two of my vacation and I have still had to log into work on three days. Yes, do the math. Okay, so technically your vacation started on Friday, which then immediately went into the weekend. And on Friday, well, Friday was the first day of my vacation and I had to log in. Mm -hmm. I did not have to log in on Saturday. I had to log in on Sunday. And Monday, and I'm going to have to on Tuesday, on my vacation, that I'm not allowed to carry over into the next year. No, I'm not bitter at all. You, um, you're bitter. Now, in sharp contrast, I'm on day one of my vacation. Mm -hmm. I have answered exactly one email, and I will have to log in on Wednesday. So far, I've logged in more days than I've had vacation. You wanted to make the big bucks. Anyway. This is the problem. So, by popular request. Of how many people? What is popular request? In terms of um, active, participating studio audience members. We have one studio audience member and he's not actively participating. He just walked out. See? Um. <laughs> <laughs> See? Not actively he, participating. He came in, he had one request, he made the request, and then said, I'm out of here. Okay, what was his request? Because it normally is food. To find out what happened with Mercedes radios and Secure. Oh. Well, I'm sure... <laughs> <laughs> That that has been the top of everyone's mind since it was part of the Lost episode. It was part of the Lost episode, and you actually said in our recovery episode. In the recovery. The recovery episode. (laughs) Is that what we're calling it? You actually said, you know, that was a really interesting story. We should still talk about that. And then we questioned as to whether or not I would remember to pull it up, and I did. I'm questioning whether or not I said that was very interesting and we should talk about it. But okay, let's talk about it because it is kind of interesting. So as you recall, Secure Grand Prix and the flub that lost um, George Russell the win and his first podium in Formula One for the first time, because there were two issues. Well, the second one wasn't really a flub, but the first one was definitely a flub. Mm -hmm. So as you'll recall, George had led much of the race uh, on the the Bahrain Outer Loop. Um, But then there was the safety car that came out after, ironically, Jack Aiken in George's Williams spun out in the final corner and sent debris all over the track. So Mercedes made the decision under the safety car to, as they put it, make a safety stop and double stack the cars. Correct. What ensued was... Chaos. Almost as Keystone Cop-like as Hockenheim a few years ago. So naturally, Netflix was filming. They were not this time. Oh, so we can't blame Netflix, huh? Cannot blame Netflix. Um, As you recall, we we had... Um, tires come out, get slapped on George's car. George takes off. Valtteri comes in right behind and then sits there. Chaos ensues and there's issues and tires come off Valtteri's car. Tires go on Valtteri's car. The original tires get then put back on Valtteri's car and away he goes. And George is called into pit yet again because of a mismatched set of tires. He had some tires that were his tires and some tires that were Valtteri's tires. Yes. Which is not a lot. Correct. So that brings George in and we found out what happened. And Mercedes has blamed this 
on not just an issue with their radios, but in how their radios work and prioritize messages. So according to uh, Mercedes trackside engineer Andrew Shevlin, um, he said it has to do with how the radio system prioritizes messages. When, for instance, Ron Meadows, who's the sporting director, is calling out the crews and getting them to get the tires ready for the two drivers, there were a number of broadcasts at that time on the radio system. The system knows to prioritize the messages coming from Ron because the most important thing is that the tires are there, more so than whatever a driver says or whatever someone else in the crew might say. But it looks like there is a period whereby the system is deciding to let the prioritized message through and we missed a key bit of the broadcast, which meant that half of the tire collectors didn't get the message, and it looks like half of them did. Therefore, we've got cars coming in, and all the tires are not ready in the pit lane. Now, they have said they have fixed the problem in this probably once-in-a-lifetime situation of split-second chaos and pandemonium, but it was... Part of George's tire collectors didn't get the message. Part of them did. And they didn't... The tire collectors, I guess, weren't fully aware of who was coming in when, so the wrong tires were presented. And, of course, the guys who are in the pit lane are just like, give me tires. <laughs> what I found <clears throat> utterly fascinating about this story mm-hmm. was it was something I had never thought of. Okay. Um, you think... It's not weird... In that you know that there's radio messages going on. We hear radio messages with the drivers. We hear them with the pit wall. We figure that people are talking to each other, you know. Mm-hmm. We've heard um, Toto talk to Lewis. We've ter- heard James Allison talk to Lewis on the, the radios. We know that they make calls from the pit wall to the, to the uh, pit crews because we talk about it. We've talked about it at Monaco where the pit wall and the pit crews are like, they're on top of each other because it's double stacked. Mm -hmm. Um, So we talk about that. But what I never thought about was the way that radio system has to be put together in order to make sure that my radio message goes to you appropriately. Mm -hmm. And what happens when there's multiple, because it's not like it's an open radio for everyone to get everybody's messages. Because that would be utter chaos. But what happens if, you know, the same person needs to receive the same message, you know, two messages Mm -hmm. from two different people? And how does that work out? I never thought that there'd be some automated prioritization system that said everybody gets Toto's message, but Bono's message is going to go to Lewis and... Well, it's not even just that, though. It's that if two people are calling to... Bono. It's who gets which message gets there first. Exactly. And that blows me away that even and I know every time we have these conversations, I'm blown away by the attention to detail that is in Formula One. And I I, one day I will stop being surprised by it, which would be sad. But I'm always shocked at somebody sat down and said you know, we could probably make this more efficient if we figure out a way to give every person a priority of who people could talk to. Because you know, like, Ed in engineering probably has no need to talk to Bono. Shouldn't on a regular basis. But maybe there's a need for Ed Mm -hmm. Ed in engineering to talk to Bono. And so he's like 14th on the priority list just in case. That somebody had to th- sit down and think about it, and then design a system to do it, and, and to allow all those messages to flow simultaneously as needed. Exactly. It. I get some engineer is like laughing and going, "Ha ha ha! She's so simple." Well, it here, amazes me. Let me throw another wrench into how this works. So you're looking at it from the perspective of a single pit garage. Mm-hmm. And all of the communications around that team. That's one team out of 10 mm-hmm. on the, or excuse me. Yeah. Okay. 10, 10 on the grid. And each of them have similar systems and they can't conflict with each other. Uh, there's that. 
Keep that in mind too. And you also have to have a priority mm-hmm. system for the uh, race stewards and such that also need to be able to talk to the various key players in the well, process. Well, well, that then becomes the next piece because while, yes, none of those systems can conflict with each other, but at least one of those channels has to be available at all times so that it can be broadcast through the F1 app mm-hmm. so that the marshals have the ability to listen to it or the stewards have the ability to listen to it. And oh, by the way, it can't interfere with all of the the trackside communications that are needed to coordinate for the safety car and the marshalling and all of those other bits and pieces and can't interfere with what the, the FIA has to put out for the flagging system that's displayed in the cars and displayed on each of the individual pit walls. It's a very complex data environment. So, you know, you know how they give driver of the day mm-hmm. awards? I think they need to do engineer of the day or engineer of the year. Somebody came up with this idea. Somebody came up with how to deconflict it. Somebody put that all together. That's pretty cool. There was a video, I think two years ago. Yeah, about two years ago that Mercedes put out. Um... And, and, and it's it's Bern Mylander who drives the safety car. And the reason why Mercedes put it out is because they supply the safety car. Um, but it was Bern Mylander walking through the safety car and the systems that are in it and how it works and what makes that car special. In a lot of ways, it is a standard Mercedes GT. But in a lot of other ways, there's additional displays that are available to them so that they have live timing and scoring broadcast to them in the car Mm -hmm. they have um other telemetry data that is sent to them in the car they're getting they have the same flagging system and and lighting system that the drivers see for the flags around the track available to them in the car plus they've got specific signaling that they have so one of the things that i didn't realize is that so we know about the yellow flashing light to indicate that the safety car is on the track and going around what I didn't know is that when lapped cars are allowed to pass, that light actually flips to a flashing green light. Yeah. That's the signal to the drivers that lap cars can pass. And then flips back to yellow flashing. And then when they're bringing it in, it goes off completely. Um, but he's got, there's a Wi-Fi router in, in the car to power all of the various bits and pieces that are going on. And... and yeah, it, it, it's impressive, all of the stuff that he has in there. You know... <clears throat> There's like four radios that they have, and yeah. See, I go back to F1, I mean, beyond the track. What happens on that track is mesmerizing and magical, mm-hmm. and it is amazing to watch these drivers put cars that are that size so close to each other, and most of the time they don't at hit each other. At that speed. At that speed, and most of the time they don't hit each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you watch the the ballet that is a pit stop, which honestly, mm-hmm. if you don't think that that is dance, you are wrong, because it is so well choreographed, it is so practiced, Um, To be able to do that and everybody knows where everybody's arms are going to go and everybody knows which way they're going to reach for the tires and all of those pieces. And then you get down to the level of somebody had to put the communication systems together and somebody had to put together how all of the safety car is going to have all of the stuff that it needs in it and the medical car needs stuff. Honestly, the greater... F1 adjacent systems are mm-hmm. just as impressive as watching a car drive around the truck. And, and you know, you know, to add another layer to that, so what we see trackside isn't all of the support mechanism either, because almost every, almost if not every single team also has another team back at their plant, live monitoring and interacting mm-hmm. and you know, assisting with the strategy. The strategist may not necessarily be trackside. Right. Uh, you know, I think McLaren's strategist is back in Woking. And all those links are live and it's live real-time communications from the other side of the globe. And sometimes when <clears throat> they need parts, 
they overnight ship them. And mm-hmm. sometimes the factory sends the call to 3D print them. Yes. At we talked side. about that a couple of years ago. I'm like, select printer, Bahrain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mind-blowing. And by the way, none of this is what we talked about when we talked about it. None in of the this last, part was, just the, in the radio last was. The, but the radio stuff is so cool. And I just think that... It, <clears throat> I think people miss it when they go, oh, it's cars driving around a track. You miss all of those interconnectedness yeah. that it requires to put this all together. And, and you know, that's one of the things we've been track-sided at IndyCar and to the Junior Series at Indy. We've been on the pit wall and their operations are at the track mm-hmm. and they're just at the track and they're fairly small compared to a Formula One trackside event. And yet still coordinated mm-hmm. and all uh, oh, those, yeah. those pieces in their baby forms are there. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't come up through using like, you know, uh, those like walkie-talkie radios. The FRS radios, yeah. Yeah, they don't come up using those and then <laughs> suddenly they hit F1 and they get the real stuff. No, I mean, you, you have evolutions of tech every time you move up in a series so speaking of evolutions of a driver well i don't know about evolutions of a driver but i was going to say speaking of something that we discussed quite a bit in the lost show and didn't discuss as much in the recovery the recovery show um nikita mazapan mm-hmm. Haas's new driver your favorite um, so as as we mentioned and, and before you even go that route um as we mentioned that Nikita is probably not somebody that we're going to be rooting for. I, I don't get the sense that he's got a positive fan base. Um, the hashtag we say no to Mazapan has been going around Reddit and other social media channels for about two weeks now. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Um, and a lot of, well, some of it is due to a video that uh, Nikita had put on his social media site now about, well, it was a week after he was named driver at Haas. Mm-hmm. And in in my description of it in the law show, I was actually a little bit incorrect. I had stated that what the video was was him riding in a car with a woman sitting in the back seat. And as they were riding along, he reaches over and grabs her chest. And in response, she whips around and she throws his hand off and and flips him off i was incorrect he reached under her shirt and grabbed her chest and she threw his hand off and flipped him off okay so haas came out and issued a very strongly worded statement against this and declared that they felt that this was an abhorrent video and said that they would be taking action the fia and formula one both uh, released strongly worded statements about uh, how inappropriate this video was. The video was pulled down from Nikita's social media feed. Um, however, about a day or two later, um, someone who claimed to be the girl in the video said, oh, you guys don't understand that we've been friends for years and I wasn't bothered by it and all of that other stuff. That came down a few days later. Oh, wow. Um, Nikita did put up an apology and said that, you know, as a Formula One driver, I need to remember that I, uh, you know, need to behave to a higher standard, all of that stuff. Um, Towards the end of last week, that came down off of his website. Um, All Haas will say is that they probably won't disclose what actions they take, but they're going to take actions. Interesting. The problem here is that Haas is really caught in a bad situation. Because the whole reason that Nikita was signed wasn't because he's a good driver. Wasn't because they they thought he was talented. It was all because of his dad. Mm -hmm. And because of the big check that his dad was going to write for Nikita to be driving. So should they 
fire Nikita in response to this, which they would do for, let's face it, pretty much anybody else on that team, they would lose all of that money, Mm. which could potentially sink the team. Oh, my. Yeah. This is a problem. This is a really big problem. So, naturally, Haas has come out. They definitely made the statement that it was abhorrent behavior. So, they've come out and publicly smacked um, Nikita and said, you will not do this or you will lose your seat. Correct? All they've said is, well, we're going to take action, but we may keep that action private. Okay. Um, that's uh, disappointing. E- extremely. Um, but, you, you know, one, part of our discussion in, in the law show, which in a way we've got to bring it back, is the, the wisdom in general of signing Nikita in the first place. This event aside, Nikita has a checkered history at best Mm -hmm. um ferrari yeah i believe it was ferrari's newly named uh test and development driver callum eilat who was also considered a candidate for this seat at haas um when he when he was in f3 with nikita um nikita got upset because callum blocked him in a race and punched him in the face Mm. um there is a history of unsportsmanlike behavior um when dad's company dimitri uh the company called uh Uricali, uh, which is a chemical company a chemical and a mining company um they suffered a mining accident one year where several workers were killed and seriously injured and the night that happened uh nikita went out and had a party posted about it on social media there's a lot of tone deaf behavior at best tone deaf behavior if not outright ignorance there's a lot of concern about things that he has done in the past and posted on social media and whether or not that behavior is socially acceptable to any in in anywhere outside of oh russia Mm -hmm. wow and this was done the deal was done to save the team and to get the money. So one of the last things that we'll revise from the last show is that your supposition is that signing Mazapan was, is a uh, indication that this is Gene Haas's ag- exit plan to sell the team to, Ma- uh, to Daddy. I'm not the only one. There's a, there's a couple other folks. So um, Dimitri, Dimitri Mazepan um, has been sniffing around Formula One for quite a while. Um, I believe it was a couple of years ago that we were talking about the possibility of uh, Nikita getting a seat with Williams and possibly having been announced. It was either Williams or Sauber. And possibly having been announced as a driver and then the season came around and that didn't happen. Actually, I believe it was, if I remember correctly, it was um, Monisha Keltenborn had set the deal up. And when she was terminated, that was erased. Mm. I think that's what that was. And we had questioned whether or not this money was real. Right. So he's been trying to buy a team, buy a seat, buy a something Mm -hmm. for a while. Including uh, tried to buy uh, Sahara Force India when the team imploded thanks to Sergio Perez taking action to unseat Vijay Malia. Forcing the team into administration. Uh, When he lost that bid, uh, Dimitri filed a, a lawsuit. Wow. So that case was decided a few weeks ago. Oh, okay. So I'm guessing since I haven't heard about rolling back the sale of Force India, he lost? He did. So in, in specific, uh, the lawsuit was not against Lawrence Stroll. 
It was against uh, the uh, FR, the firm FRP Advisory, uh, specifically Jeff Raleigh and Jason Baker of FRP, FRP Advisory, which was the firm that acted as the administrator when the team went bankrupt. They were the ones who were responsible for selecting the purchaser and executing the sale of the team to the new owners. Okay. Um, so... Uricali's claim was that the administrators had failed failed to conduct a fair and proper sales process. Uh, specifically, Uricali claimed that FRP had ne- negligently misrepresented that they would select the successful bidder on the basis of the most favorable offer and negligently misrepresented that the bidding process would be operated on a level playing field as between all bidders. In addition, Uricali, because the suit was actually brought on, on behalf of uh, Dimitri's company, Uricali, and not on Dimitri himself. Uricali said that FRP conducted the bid process negligently and breached an equitable duty of confidence by disclosing confidential information to Mr. Stroll related to Uricali's bid. Now, one of the things that they had also used apparently as part of their defense is a claim that um, Lawrence told Paul Osting. Ostling of Uricali, who Paul represented Uricali in this court case. Um, supposedly, Lawrence Stroll told Paul Osting, Ostling that the primary reason for him buying the team was to ensure that Lance had a seat in Formula One. Mm. Um, like I mentioned, Uricali was represented in the case by Paul Ostling. Um, and the case was listened to over seven days in November by a Mr. Justice Miles. It was in the UK, so I'm not sure. I, I don't believe, I think Mr. Justice is the title in the UK. It's not his name, Justice. Okay. I think. Otherwise, his parents were clairvoyant. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Justice Miles, uh, or one of the things that, that Justice Miles said in issuing the the judgment is um one of the key decision makers was the fact that dimitri mazapan didn't bother to appear or represent himself in the case um which did not help yeah it does tend to bode poorly for your yes so in response to every every single piece was thrown out all of the claims Oh my. Um, the Uricali responded that although Uricali is disappointed with the decision of the trial court, it is pleased that the trial confirmed a number of its prior statements, including the fact that Uricali's bid for the assets of Force India F1 team was higher than the winning bid. Uricali intends to seek permission to as- appeal the decision handed down today and to continue to protect its rights in accordance with applicable legal procedures. Okay. While we're on the topic of Force India, though. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's been a long time since we've talked about Bob Furnick. It has been. I almost forgot who he was. Almost did. And then you saw the picture and you're like, oh, yeah, I remember Bob. I remember Bob. So Bob Fernley used to be the team principal of Sahara Force India. He was well known for his um, heated tirades at times. No. About Stewart's decisions. No. He had opinions? Yeah. <laughs> he expressed them? Well, Bob Fernley has been named to replace Stefano Domenicali as the head of the FIA Single-Seater Commission. Okay. Now, as you recall, Stefano is leaving his position as head of the FIA Single-Seater Commission to take over Chase Carey's, role, Chase Carey's position as at the head of Formula One starting 2021. Yes. I did not see that Stefano was going to be required to have unique facial hair, though. No, I don't believe that is in his contract. I, I find that... He is going to bring Italian style and flair. Oh. Passion. Not unique facial hair. No. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Just want to make sure I understand what the rules are here. So, now that we are past the snooze fest that was the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. 
that is always the snooze fest. And, and I, you know, I, I finally got a chance to listen to the BBC's recap of uh, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And I, I, I'm listening to it and I'm hearing Jack Nichols go, yeah, you know, I was really excited. I was really hoping it with Lewis in third, we were going to get a really good race. And I'm like, but it's Abu Dhabi. It is always a boring race. Why would you think it would be anything other than a boring? And they're like, yeah, this might have been the most boring race since Paul Ricard last year. I'm like, no, <laughs> it's the most boring race since Abu Dhabi last year. Because it's Abu Dhabi and Abu Dhabi's always boring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. Anyway. And. You know, coming now that we're a few days out of Abu Dhabi, of which is traditionally a boring race, we then traditionally have the comments of, "Wow, you know, we probably should rethink the layout of Abu Dhabi because it's really kind of boring." The latest theory as to what makes Abu Dhabi, because everyone admits that you know, you look at the track and you look at the layout, and on paper, this should be a really exciting track. There should be good stuff going on here. Well, now the theory as to what's going on is. So you'll recall that really the way Abu Dhabi works is it's a couple of straight sections and then a lot of what the the drivers like to call Mickey Mouse sections. Mm. Basically a lot of 90 degree turns. Okay. Um, not quite to the point of riding on city streets, but a lot of 90 degree turns. The problem is, at Abu, and, and what makes Abu Dhabi unique is those 90 degree turns are what are known as off-camber turns. Okay. So explain to me, using as small a words as possible, Okay. what does off-camber mean versus on-camber? So I'm going to go somewhere that I know you will understand. Actually, a better way to look at it. Okay. So think of Daytona. Okay. Okay. And that track is known for that super steep banking. Correct. And actually, if you've ever seen them repave the track, it's fascinating. Because they've got these big bars to hook the the asphalt laying stuff to the wall so that they can make it around. But anyway, that banking, that steep slope is the camber of the corner. The natural camber that you want in a corner is like you see in, in Daytona, that the outside of the corner is higher than the inside of the corner. Okay. The reason for that is because it allows you to go through a corner faster centrifugal force helps you out helps you stick to the corner that's that's and and i think it's just a cambered corner is what they call that an off cambered corner has that the slope flipped the other way so the outside of the track is lower than the inside of the right thereby making it harder to go through the corner at a higher speed okay and keeping the car stable okay that's what they did in Bahrain. All of those corners are off-camber corners. Okay. So it's harder to take those corners at a faster speed, and the line through those corners is a lot smaller. So you can't battle somebody on the outside of an off-camber corner. Oh. Uh, oh. Okay. Now I understand. Yeah, so that's now the latest thing of maybe we should rethink these off-cambered corners. Okay. And maybe that will go and fix the problem in Bahrain, or in uh, Abu Dhabi. I don't know if they're actually going to do it, but that's the latest theory. So you could fix the corners, Mm -hmm. or you could use the Paul Ricard method and just cancel the race. Yeah, that, that only works in 2020. Well, it worked in 2020. <laughs> Something went right in 2020. So, other news. Other news. We, we, we had driver news sorted out. There, there were two seats, one highly anticipated, um, one probably less anticipated. However, in news that at the very least came as um, not a surprise to Daniel Fiat. Pretty much not a surprise to anyone. Um, definitely not to Daniel Kvyat. Uh, he, he knew this was coming, that uh, his his days were numbered, and um, Alpha Tori has announced that Honda Jr., Yuki Sonoda, 
will be replacing Daniel for 2021 and joining uh, Pierre Gasly. Okay. What I find truly curious about this decision, more than anything else, and, and honestly, I don't know anything about Yuki Tsunoda. We, we've been hearing about him as being a promising candidate for a while, but Honda wanted to get him into a seat. I just find it interesting that Honda gets a butt in the seat the last year they're going to be in Formula One. I know. And that just seems odd to me. It does, but you know that all the rumors are that the Honda engine is going to get transferred to Red Bull and they're going to become their own engine manufacturer. Red Bull's pushing pretty hard for that. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know what's going to happen. Uh, a lot of talk that if there is an engine freeze coming, and, and there is a push for an engine freeze, I think, in 22, um, that that would help... Red Bull get the Honda engines that they want. Okay. I don't know. The other bit of news um, is that Alexander Albin is no longer a Formula One driver. Well, he is. He's a reserve driver. He's a reserve driver. I If Red Bull treats him the way they treat the, their previous reserve driver... Um, he will head off into obscurity and we will never see him again. And then somebody will go, oh, we might need a reserve driver and then realize that he doesn't have the super license points anymore because he hasn't been in a car in so long. That sounds like a completely... That's what happened to Sebastian Buemi. That sounds like a completely reasonable course of action. He's going to get put on ice in a corner and let his super license expire. Yeah. And replacing him is Sergio Perez. Told you he was going to have a seat. Um, I, I will say this. I, given Red Bull's insistence over the last several years about how they would not consider a driver outside of their program and outside of their young driver program, as much as I know how much they've been backed into a corner at this point, and how much that has hurt them over the last few years. I honestly did not expect them to move out of the program. I really did. I mean, it's a to be very frank, it's a shift in their fundamental philosophy that they've had, you know, mm-hmm. since Vettel, honestly. Um, but one that honestly they needed to they needed to have that moment where they sat down and said, "Hey, if we're going to have a chance, if there's any chance of somebody being able to back Max up and what they're, what the, is coming up through the program right now isn't that person right now. So they had to go outside the program to get them. And quite well, frankly, Sergio did everything to deserve a seat. Sergio year. did everything that he did, everything that he needed to, to show that, that he deserved the seat. Um, and Alex quite frankly, did not. He did not have a, a, a great season. Well, he didn't have a great season in a Red Bull. Mm-hmm. If he had been in a mid-pack team or if he had been back at Alpha Tori, it would have been a perfectly fine season and it would have kept him in a seat. But for a Red Bull, it was not a great season. Um, but Sergio becomes the first driver since Mark Webber to drive for the team that did not come up through the Red Bull organization. Now, Will Buxton said, this is wonderful for Sergio. It gives him all this freedom, and and it means that he is not subject to the vagary and whims of Helmut Marco that all of their other drivers have been. And I read that, and I'm like, dude, You've been in a pit lane for how long? You saw firsthand how Helmet treated Mark Webber in those last few years. How can you say this? I know. I, I, I didn't understand it. I, honestly, I that's where I think Sergio is going to have the most trouble is Helmet is going to find the new young driver of the week that's going to get him excited. And then he's going to turn on Sergio just like he used to turn on on Mark Webber. Exactly. Um, I, I don't think that this is 
at, from that perspective, I don't think that this is great. From Sergio's perspective, I think this is a fantastic move for him, but I also don't see it lasting more than a year, maybe two tops. I think it's a filler year. I honestly do. In other news, so first off, word has come out that Toto Wolf, Toto Wolf not only has a th- three-year contract now with Mercedes, but a three-year contract to remain the team principal and CEO of the Formula One team. But that's only part of it. The other announcement that came out, and apparently that announcement was tied to Toto's contract, was that Ineos, which is one of their sponsors, and we had mentioned, actually we had, um, uh, Eddie Jordan, had, and, and we kind of mocked it, Mm-hmm. Eddie Jordan had had put forth the rumor, I think it was in August, that Ineos was going to buy the team. Right. He was partly right. What actually happened is Ineos has bought a one-third share in the team. Um, and as part of the deal, so Mercedes originally had a 60% stake in the team. They are diluting their position. They've got a 30% stake in the team. Ineos has a 30% stake in the team. And Toto Wolf has a 30% stake in the team. And actually, I'm I'm rounding. I was going to say, it's 33-33-33, Yeah, it's 33-33. So originally, Toto had 30%. Now he's up to 33%. His share moved up. But it is now the three of them in joint ownership of this Formula One team. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, you know, we we talked, what, last year or a year before about how Toto Wolf's real background, while, yes, he's done some racing without much success, his real background, the real thing that he likes is investment banking. Mm-hmm. If there was any thought about Toto Wolf's skill as an investment banker, this deal <laughs> pretty much cements that he's kind of a genius. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and we have him around for three more years, so that makes me happy. Yeah. Um yeah. This is this is a good deal. I mean, he's he's parlayed these ownership deals very, very mm-hmm. well. And to think it started with, you know, a, a small share in Williams. I know. But he I mean he would had he was successful in the banking side. Oh, he was. And that that's, and that's how where he, he got the capital, capital to buy in there. And, you know, my understanding is not only does he have a third of Mercedes, he's got a share in Aston Martin now, too. Correct. Yeah. So, 2020 is over from a racing perspective. Mm-hmm. We can already look to 2021. And thank you, Ferrari, for announcing this week the first ones to announce when their car reveal is going to be. So you can put it on the calendar? can put it on the calendar. Well, actually, we don't have an affi- we, we don't have the definitive date yet, but it will be within one or two days prior to the start of the one and only test. Winter so, test. Let me make a prediction. Mm-hmm. It will be red. That's my guess, too. (laughs) The SF21 will be the name of the car. The question will be how much Go Fast White they put on the car. Because we do know that when Ferrari adds white, they go faster. Yeah. Um, Speaking of Ferrari, so this week was Carlos Sainz's seat fitting. Oh, his first days in Ferrari colors and his first media appearances for Ferrari. Very, very cool. It's exciting stuff. And, and if you haven't seen it, you need to find uh, the video that McLaren sent to Ferrari. That was bad so, Italian and all. That was so sweet. And we, you, you've posted it up on our Facebook page. I know that. Did I put it on ours? I, I know I shared it on mine. I may have shared it on both. I, don't I thought you shared it on ours, but it was so sweet. And the best part about it was the, we've <laughs> taken care of him for a few years. So now it's your turn. Please take care of him. 
and you know this long legacy of McLaren and Ferrari mm-hmm. rivals and brothers and, and we have a lot of respect for you even though we're competitive and actually no the best part was not the we've taken care of Carlos oh it sounded to me it was like that whole we've taken care of Carlos and and now it's your turn to take care of him it was like we've taken care of this little package for a while <laughs> well well that was like the the letter that Force India sent to Renault for Hulk for Hulk Hulkenberg um, however, the best part of it was the tweet from Carlos Sainz, who apparently had no idea that this was going on Aww. and woke up to that in his social media feed. Aww. <laughs> it's, it's sweet when we make drivers cry. <laughs> yeah. And, and unfortunately I didn't save the picture, but I had come across, um, so I, Again, lost in, in the, the lost show, we talked about the gifts that teams gave their departing drivers and that um, Roman Grosjean, he actually got his a, a, a week early, um, was presented with a steering wheel by the team. Um, and on his last race, Kevin was given a, a steering wheel as well from Haas. Um, but McLaren presented as a going away present to Carlos an engine cover that was autographed by the team. Um Lando's message, that because you know it was like the the yearbook autograph. You, mm. you put a little Lando's message that that you know gonna miss you. I'm the best teammate you you'll ever have. Um, appreciate all the golf tips. <laughs> <laughs> Outstanding. <Yeah. laughs> Those two had a great. They had a great fun, but they should never do a grid walk together. No, that was that was not fun. Um, that was bad. Yeah. Don't do that again. It, 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 it'll be interesting to see Daniel Ricardo and Lando Norris. We've mentioned that before. If Carlos and Lando were entertaining, Daniel and Lando even more Oh, so. I do hope they get along. I really hope they get along. Oh, well, they, they've already been messing with each other. In the, As a matter of fact, Lando has crashed a couple of Daniel's interviews in, in the past. To, to the point that Land or that Daniel looked at Lando at one point and said, "I will end you." <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of pranks, I should mention this as well. We didn't talk about it through the the season, but I think it was three races before the end of the season. Actually, it may have even been before that. So, in the post race interviews, Max Verstappen started joking as we got deeper and deeper into the season, the number of times that he ended up in third place, which you always sit in the same chair for the post-race press conference, he was like, I'm going to just take this chair home with me. I'm, I'm, I'm claiming this is my chair because he'd been in it so much. And finally, like three or four races before the end of the season, they'd wrap up the, the post-race press conference and he'd pick up the chair and walk out with it. Oh my. Because he's like, I'm always in this chair. I, I, I just should claim it for myself. Well, apparently... After the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, he brought the chair back so that Lewis could sit in. Here you go, Lewis. Yeah, you you can have my chair. (laughs) Okay, that was see the most exciting things that happen at Abu Dhabi don't happen on the track. Yeah. So anyway, 2021 and looking forward, um, we apparently will not have a Brazilian Grand Prix we will have a Sao Paulo Grand Prix and Formula One has signed a five-year deal with Interlagos to host the Sao Paulo Grand Prix. Interesting. Yeah. Um, And as part of that announcement was also word that the 23 race calendar for 2021 was approved by the World Motorsport Council, the FIA. However, the April 25th date is still listed as to be confirmed. That was originally supposed to be for Vietnam. Um, word is, or well, the rumor right now is that Portimao is the leading candidate for it. However, uh, apparently discussions are also being held with either Imola, well, with Imola, Mugello, and Portimao. One of those three to take the spot. But it's the the word is Portimao may be leading that that discussion. I'll take that. Yeah. It, that it, was a good race. It was. It was a very good race. Um, Barcelona will be on the calendar for next year. Um, but 
we will see a change. Okay. So they're reprofiling turn 10. No, no, everyone is like, turn 10. Oh, I know exactly, exactly where that is. <laughs> yeah, I got it. But for Trisha, because she doesn't. Well, and you didn't buy me the necklace at Barcelona. I, I didn't. I got you Silverstone. I know. Um, so, and you wouldn't have seen it on the necklace. So if you think about the pictures of Barcelona and all that you've seen, there is one turn where um, they go around the bend and on the outside of that, that turn is this red area that usually says either Barcelona or Catalonia or Circuit to Catalonia to Barcelona. You know, some, there's something there. And then outside of that, there's like, you can see that it's marked for a turn, but nobody goes there because it's on the inside. That's turn 10. Or, apparently up until 2004, Formula One used that outer portion of the turn. However, due to safety concerns, they reprofiled the turn and moved Formula One to the inside portion. MotoGP continued to use the outer turn. They've now come up with a new design to eliminate the inner turn. They'll, they'll go out through the outer turn. It's going to be a bit tighter. I guess that's the answer is to make this tighter. But they're going to use the outer turn now. Oh, okay. So that should be coming. And, and it is being done for safety. All right. Um, uh, the Swiss debris fence manufacturer Geobrug. You never heard of them before, but they're actually very important to Formula One because all of the fencing, the catch fencing and, and stuff like that that is around Formula One tracks and a lot of other tracks as well is made by Geobrug. Okay. They have announced a new lighting system that um, if tracks adopted could allow for more night races. The big difference in this, so what, what we've seen in the past is... Um, you get like the Bahrain solution and the, um, the Abu Dhabi solution where it's the giant basically ballpark lights that, that ring the track. Or you have something like they do in Singapore where it's lights on the catch fence and they're aimed at a very specific angle so that you don't get the glare in the driver's Because that's the big thing is you don't want to get glare in the driver's eyes at those speeds and blind the drivers. That's considered bad form. Mm-hmm. It, it was a very special and custom design that was done for Singapore. Mm-hmm. Geobrug has come out now with a lighting design that affixes to existing debris and catch fences at tracks. No modifications are needed and allow tracks to be lit to the required standards for a Formula One race without having any impact to the safety of the fence or the track. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And it's all LED powered. So on one hand, oh, wow, cool. New mm-hmm. tech. On the other hand, do we really need more night races? And, and that's a valid question. Um, I mean, we know that Russia has tried to get one. Um, I think that the big issue I have is the closest that we've gotten to decent racing at a night track is Bahrain occasionally. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think the outer loop was probably the best night racing we've seen. It was a good race. It really was. Mm-hmm. But let's also remember the whole reason why they wanted to make Bahrain a night race is because there's nothing around it but desert. Right. So during the day, it's this bland featureless look mm-hmm. and for some reason somebody thought well that's the problem with Bahrain it, it wasn't but they were like well that's the problem with Bahrain we'll just go and have it at night because it'll look better um, <laughs> I, yeah if Bernie Eccleston got his Las Vegas race mm-hmm. you know he'd want it at night oh yeah but I, I go back to <clears throat> I'm not entirely sure that we need that many more night races. Yeah. Part of what makes the night races cool is that they are unusual on the calendar. Now, that's a Formula One application. Now, and, and And that's the other thing is this allows, say, um, a track that wants to hold an endurance race. You know, maybe Watkins Glen or Sebring or 
even Portimao or Mugello, they want to have a six-hour endurance race. Well, without having to bring in a special bespoke lighting system like they've done in Bahrain and like they've done in in Abu Dhabi, they can use this system to snap the lights to the debris fence and they can host the racing late into the evening. I mean, that part's kind of cool too. Yeah. So? The other bit of news that has come out is that Formula One has developed a 100% sustainable fuel from bio-waste. The first delivery of the product has been sent to engine manufacturers for testing. Oh, wow. Now, we don't know when this is going to actually become part of the rules, and we will see it more often, but this is a second-generation biofuel variety exclusively refined from bio-waste that is not intended for human or animal consumption. Okay. So we'll see where that goes. I mean, this is part of the push that the the sport has been aiming for to have uh, sustainable fuels. They want to be net zero carbon as a sport by 2030. Right. I don't know if that makes sense for Formula One as a, you know, fossil fuel powered sport to do that, but okay. And in our last story, and unfortunately we don't have a lot of details. Wow. All we know is we got word from Williams and specifically the Williams family that Sir Frank was admitted to the hospital and is in stable condition. Yes. Now, Frank is 78 years old. Um, Claire, He and Claire stepped away from the team with the sale of the team. Um, but the team, well, actually not the team, the family has come out and said, Frank's stable, he's in the hospital, and we're not telling you anything else. Exactly. Don't ask. They did ask that they that people respect their privacy. So my guess, and that's the best I've got here, is that Frank's not doing very well. He is 78 years old. Yeah. He's been paralyzed for a long time. And the family is circling around Frank and needs to put family first. And they don't need to be dealing with the media right now. They don't. My only concern, and, and I, I acknowledge the, the need for privacy and for keeping the public at arm's length. Um, I, I don't like the stance of, we've told you all we're telling you, now go away. I, I don't like the fact that the Schumachers have done it. I don't think it's helpful. Um, there, there are people who are emotionally invested in them as a family and as an organization that, yes, they are outside of the group that are concerned and would like to know something. You don't have to give a lot of details. You don't have to give a lot of updates. But something that at least indicates the, he's breathing, he's conscious, you know. The the fact that we have heard nothing from the Schumacher family, and and, and it, it does tie into the fact that we've heard nothing from the Schumacher family since he went into the hospital, and we know he's not in the hospital anymore, is ridiculous. So, on one hand, I vehemently disagree with you. And on the other hand, I kind of understand. So I'll take both hands here. I vehemently disagree with you. This is their family. Mm -hmm. They have, and despite the fact that they are well known or that they've had any public influence whatsoever, this is family. And when family is... In the hospital, their focus, rightly so, should be on their family and the rest of the world kind of be damned. Um, and I, I, will, I don't disagree with that part. And I will support the attitude of the family saying, this is our time. We will update you when we update you. Period. Well, so, so my, my, but my problem, though, was that that's not what they said. What they said is, this is all we're going to tell you. I took that I, to I, be, I agree. we will update you when we update you. And and, and and I don't have necessarily a problem with, with, we will update you when we update you. And I don't even have a problem with the, we're hanging, you know, if, if the update is, 
There's been no change. We're hanging in there. Thanks. But Okay, that's fair. So on one hand, it's their family and they're allowed to mm-hmm. to handle it in whatever fashion they want. Um, and I support the fact that they are a family that has gone through an awful lot this year. And Claire said very much that one of the reasons they walked away from Williams' racing team was to put family first. Yeah. And so this is a manifestation of that. And I support her in that. The difference that I see and the concern is that you also bring up the Schumacher family. And this is where I slightly agree with you. The situation with Michael Schumacher has gone on for so many years. Mm-hmm. My anticipation that Frank Williams is not going to live the number of years in the hospital that Michael Schumacher has been living since his skiing accident. Mm-hmm. I get that this Schumacher whole family prior to the accident and all have been very private family and I, I i respect that too my issue is the world is interested not in the spectacle of it but just in how's he doing mm-hmm. and it could and, be something as simple as michael's recovery is going slow mm-hmm. we appreciate your concern thank you and and they but they won't even say that and that's the thing is they're they're giving nothing, which means that everybody mm-hmm. is just having sub- subjective answers to it, and that's frustrating. But again, I go back to. To be honest, why do I want to know? Why do I want to know what's going on with Michael Schumacher? It's because I'm curious, because I'm nosy, because I have yeah. no stake in this. He's not my family. He he's not your family, and and for us, where we were not huge fans. I mean, we it, weren't watching Formula One when he was driving. So yes, we were. Michael Schumacher. Oh well, his the last second, year his was twenty twelve. Second time around. His the last, second time around. Yeah. I mean, his winning years. Mm-hmm. We we were not following in his winning years, and but we still know of him as a form. I mean, it, it, it's no different than when Nikki Lauda went into the hospital. Mm-hmm. I mean. Yes, respect the privacy, but along the same lines, we have an interest. And we have curiosity. You're, you're, yes. When you're a public figure, the rules are a little bit differently. Yes, you do deserve privacy. And the public doesn't need any significant detail. They really don't. And and that's not what I'm even calling for. All I'm saying is we're hanging in there. We're doing our... Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's all you need. You still maintain the privacy of the condition, but but you're turning around and you're acknowledging the fact that people are interested and they want to make sure that he's not dead. (laughs) But if he is, his family should be allowed to grieve. Absolutely. But also, at that, if he does pass, or when he does, because at some point he will, let's face it. I mean, that's what happens. Um, Everybody does. Yes. When he passes, there should also be the acknowledgement that, yes, the family gets to grieve in private. And they can have all the time that they want to grieve in private. But that's where, and it, regardless of the sale, quite honestly, that's where the team now steps in and says, we're going to handle the public side of the memorial. And you take that out of the hands of the family because Williams as a team and Frank and, and has a following and have fans and they are concerned because they are a public entity and he was a public person. But let the team handle that and take that out of the hands of the family. Honestly, I, I'll be very frank here. <laughs> Funny. But um bum um, I'll be very honest. I think that a lot of the ancillary Formula One people, um, and everybody, honestly, should really look at the way the Lauda family handled Lauda. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, he's, he was in the hospital. He had lung transplants. He had things that happened before he passed that they made simple announcements. He wasn't trackside. He came back and, you know, there were phone calls and things like that. But it was, it was kept very soft touch is what the yeah. description would be made. And then when he he did pass, the team mourned. They did the public side. And we never, we never saw, saw a thing from the family. Anything from the and family. everyone was okay with that. Yeah. You know, his, his, his wife didn't have to render garments or do anything mm-hmm. like that. But the team did their thing. The team, you know, honored him. They they put the the red uh, star on the car. Those those are the things for Nikki that are there that are important. And you know, this is where I think Sabine Clem has failed the Schumacher family mm. because the you know the the same way that I think the Lauda family leveraged Mercedes to handle that piece, and, and Toto was probably more than willing. I, I have no doubt that if the Schumacher family or Sabine Clem went to either Ferrari or to the FIA and said, look, we want you to be the public face of this. We will give you limited information maybe once a year or something like that. But we want you to handle the public face of this and leave us alone. Mm-hmm. But that way the public knows that you know, we, we care that the public is interested in, in, in how Michael is doing and the public is getting some limited information to show that, yes, Michael is still re- recovering to whatever extent we want to say he's recovering. But the Schumacher family is left alone. Mm-hmm. And let the FIA handle that or let Ferrari handle that. And should just like he just like Nikki Lauda pass should he pass or should the can let them worry about it and the family can be left alone I like it and they have the they have the ability to do that where we don't <laughs> and I don't begrudge I wouldn't begrudge him of that right so yeah on that, see, I've got nothing else. See, that was the downside so to wrapping. So if you go into the hospital, you get the, the Rona and have to go into the hospital. Do you want me to make a public statement that says I'm not answering any questions about your status? You'll probably do that and I'll post on Facebook. That will exactly be what happens. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note. We'll call it a show. We are so glad you came. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. Remember, please discard all candy wrappers and popcorn containers in the nearest trash receptacle. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye now. Bye-bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. Are they all gone? Uh, is, is, there, is everybody gone? <laughs> huh? Good. Oh my gosh, my cheeks are killing me. I can't keep smiling like this anymore. I am exhausted. I think I need a break. A little break? Okay.